Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Bloodsuckers can be hijacked by viruses and parasites, but some ticks are lethal all on their own. The Australian paralysis tick paralyzes 10,000 dogs and cats a year. We didn't know how their venom worked until one day some researchers squirted some mouthwash on some ticks and made a discovery. Welcome to Tiny Vampires, a podcast about disease, science, and blood-sucking insects a member of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm Raven Forrest Fruscalzo, your host. This is episode 36. How can a tiny tick paralyze a person? Kate, from Australia, sent her question in via the Tiny Vampires website. She asked, quote, By what mechanisms do paralysis ticks kill domestic animals? How dangerous are they to humans? And are there other ticks that can harm humans by methods other than secondary infections? There's a lot to those questions, but first, you might have noticed something different about Tiny Vampires. We have new music. I met a composer at the Sound Education Conference late last year, and he's a listener, and I thought, who better to make new music for the show? I really love our new music, and I hope you guys do too. If you ever need music for any of your projects, I highly recommend title card music and sound. So, tick paralysis. This condition is really fascinating to me because unlike with other bloodsuckers, the medical condition isn't caused by a pathogen hitchhiking from one victim to the next, but it's actually caused by the tick itself. Once the symptoms start, They progress pretty quickly, going from the first sign to total paralysis in just 24 to 48 hours. In humans, it usually starts with a rash, headache, and fever, a lot of issues we would typically just brush off as the flu. Then, the patients start to wobble when they walk, as the paralysis starts in the lower body and moves towards the head. Most of the people who get tick paralysis are female kids under 10 years old, and the tick is found in the child's hair or just behind their ear. It's really, really rare for a person to die from this condition, 
Even untreated, only 10% of the cases end up in the breathing muscles becoming paralyzed. When fatalities do happen, it's because the medical staff typically misdiagnose it as some other paralysis condition, like Guillain-Barre syndrome, which can be caused by viruses like Zika or the flu. When this happens, the patient can suffocate. In pets, it usually starts with them losing their voice. Their back legs go limp, their breathing changes, they start gagging and coughing, and if they don't get help, the limpness keeps moving up their body, to their front legs, making it so they can't sit or stand. Then, they can't even lift their heads. When they die, once again, it's from suffocation. This type of paralysis may not be what you're picturing. Unlike with paralysis caused by spinal cord injuries, the tick's victim can actually still feel. They just can't move to react to what they're feeling. Of the 900 species of ticks in the world, only 73 have caused paralysis in one animal or another. Sheep, goats, cows, mice, horses, pigs, Flying foxes, chickens, birds like ostriches, snakes, and lizards have all been found paralyzed by ticks. For most of them, it only happens in an extreme situation, like 50 rhinoceros tick nymphs, or babies, on one single rabbit. There are six species of ticks that cause paralysis often enough to be seen as a real danger, either to us or domesticated animals. The foul tampon and karu paralysis ticks from South Africa, the Rocky Mountain wood tick and American dog tick in North America, the African blue tick in Sub-Saharan Africa, and the Australian paralysis tick in Australia. Together, they represent less than 1% of all the species of ticks. But interestingly, these ticks, for the most part, aren't actually closely related to one another. So it's not like there's a particular family of ticks that's causing this problem. Of these, the Australian paralysis tick, or Ixodes holocyclus, is the undisputed queen, causing more cases per year than any other. This is the species that Kate is asking about. Each different tick species seems to cause paralysis in a different way, but there are a few things that are generally true about this condition. It's always caused by the tick bite itself, not a bacteria, parasite, or virus, so the treatment always includes removing the tick itself and using a ventilator until the body naturally gets rid of the tick toxins if the condition has progressed far enough that the patient can't breathe on their own. Also, not every bite from one species causes paralysis. Right now, we don't really know why one tick will paralyze while another tick from the exact same species won't. Even getting bit by the Australian paralysis tick doesn't mean you're guaranteed to be paralyzed. We also don't know why they do it. Maybe they get some benefit from it, like a paralyzed animal is less likely to pick the tick off of itself, 
or if the paralyzing protein in the saliva is doing some other job, like keeping the animal's blood flowing, and it just happens to also interact with the animal's nerves, paralyzing them by coincidence. Regardless of the species, if the paralysis is going to happen, it happens just before what's called the rapid engorgement phase. Because ticks have to be able to fill up with blood to the point where they're many times their original size, part of the time they spend attached to the host is just spent growing a stomach big enough to hold it all in. It isn't until they have completely attached and then gone through this growth phase that they really start chowing down. In the case of the Australian paralysis tick, it takes three to seven days to get to this rapid engorgement phase, mostly depending on the temperature. So that is typically when we start seeing the paralysis symptoms. The two species of ticks here in the U.S. that most often cause paralysis, the American dog tick and the Rocky Mountain wood tick, cause 50 cases of human paralysis in the United States over the course of 60 years. Only three of those patients died. Most of those cases happened in Washington state. The condition is most common in dogs, so it's really more seen as a veterinary issue than a medical one. While there are occasional cases in humans, the Australian paralysis tick also is more trouble for domestic animals, causing paralysis in dogs, cats, sheep, goats, horses, pigs, chickens, and ducks. There are 10,000 cases of paralysis per year in dogs and cats alone. This tick lives in a thin band along the east coast of Australia and is active from September to March. Its natural host is the bandicoot, an adorable rat-like marsupial that's immune to the tick's paralyzing venom. For the most part, only the adult female Australian paralysis tick causes problems. This is most likely because they feed for much longer than the young ticks, as they need a lot of blood and nutrients to make the two to 6,000 eggs that she'll eventually lay. Although, like all cases of tick paralysis, the first step of treatment is removing the tick, for some reason, the paralysis caused by the Australian tick gets worse before it gets better after removal. With all other ticks, the patients, whether a dog or a human, starts to improve almost immediately and can go from death's door to walking in just one to two days. So just how can one tiny animal bring down a large dog or even a cow? Let's go over how nerves and muscles work so that we can get into how ticks' venom is short-circuiting the system. Let's talk neurophysiology. Our paper for this episode gets pretty detailed, so if we review how nerves tell our muscles to contract first, then we'll really understand how incredible this venom is. So say you want to high-five someone. First, your brain sends a signal down your spinal cord and into your arm, and to one of the nerves that tells your bicep to flex. When the nerve fires, 
a wave of charge moves down the neuron from the source of the signal to the end of the nerve that's near your muscle. Your muscles and your neurons aren't actually connected, but they are very close to each other. There's a small space between them called a synaptic cleft. So, for your neuron to tell your muscle to contract, it has to transmit a message across this divide. The message is a specific type of molecule called a neurotransmitter. This particular one being acetylcholine. When the neuron fires, little gates on the outside of the cell membrane open to let calcium inside. This calcium flow releases the acetylcholine into the space between the neuron and the muscle. The cleft fills up with acetylcholine, which float across and fit onto proteins on the outside of the muscle cell, fitting into them like a plug in a socket. Enough plugs in enough sockets, and your muscle contracts. That's pretty technical, so... I came up with a metaphor to help us visualize this. Say there's a spaceship and a cargo container floating near each other in space. The spaceship being the neuron, and the cargo container being the muscle cell. There are hundreds of little robots, or acetylcholine, inside of the spaceship that are specially designed to fly across to the cargo container and attach to little ports on the side of it, or the muscle's receptors. A series of events happens. The spaceship gets a call for mission control. It's time to make this container move. The astronauts are brought inside from their spacewalk and move the robots into an airlock, shooting them out into space. They fly over to the cargo container onto their little docks and make it move. This call from mission control is the neuron firing and causing the calcium, or astronauts, to come inside. They put the acetylcholine robots into an airlock and release them into the synaptic cleft, or the space between the spaceship and the cargo container. The robots attach to their little ports or the acetylcholine attaching to the receptors, and the cargo container moves. The muscle contracts. In today's paper, tick holocyclotoxins trigger host paralysis by presynaptic inhibition, Kirat Chand and his colleagues were trying to figure out which part of this process was being messed up by the tick's venom. The Australian paralysis tick's scientific name is Ixodes holocyclus, so the toxin in the tick's venom is called holocyclotoxin. From now on, I'll just be calling it toxin. That just leaves the somewhat intimidating-sounding presynaptic inhibition. While intimidating, it also might sound familiar. The space between the neuron and the muscle is called the synaptic cleft. So presynaptic is everything that happens in the series of events that leads to the muscle flexing before that space. In other words, it's a really specific way of saying whatever the toxin is doing, it's attacking what's happening in the neuron. 
Which part of this cascade is it messing up? Is the neuron not firing? Is the calcium not being let inside the cell? Is the acetylcholine not being released? In order to treat dogs and cats, and even the odd human, dying from tick paralysis, we need to know exactly which step it is. So to figure this out, Chanda and his team took muscles, and all the nerves that activate them, out of the legs of mice, and kept them in a solution to keep them alive while they were running their experiments. Some muscles were in a regular solution, while others were in a solution that was mixed with tick saliva. My favorite part of this research is how they managed to collect that tick saliva. As I said before, ticks seem to only produce the toxin just before the rapid engorgement phase. So the investigators pulled ticks off of dogs and cats who were being treated for tick paralysis at the local vet clinics. Then, instead of killing the ticks, they stuck them to a microscope slide with some tape and put droplets of pilocarpine, a medical mouthwash for people who don't produce enough saliva. This apparently works on ticks, too, and so they started to drool. Then, the investigators collected the spit in little tubes to be mixed with a solution the mouse muscles were being bathed in. Chond used tiny electrodes to record the slightest change in electrical impulses of the neurons and the muscles. Soon enough, the muscles bathed in the regular solution were contracting just fine, but the muscles bathed in the tick saliva solution had stopped contracting. They were paralyzed. To figure out how they were being paralyzed, Chand and his team used a process of elimination. Starting from the beginning of the series of events that leads to a muscle contracting, they looked to see if the neuron was firing. Is that little spaceship getting a call from mission control? Yep, the electrical impulse seemed to be flowing just fine. Then the next step. Is the calcium being let into the cell to cause the release of acetylcholine. Here's where it gets a little tricky. This calcium and acetylcholine are just microscopic molecules floating around in liquid inside of a cell. So there's not really any way to see them. Okay, so we'll just skip that step and we'll look at the muscle's electrical impulses. Naturally, the muscle wasn't flexing because it was paralyzed. But the investigators were still seeing small, random impulses. This is because neurons aren't perfect containers. Sometimes, randomly, acetylcholine leaks out. It's never enough to make the muscle contract, but it does still cause an electrical change in the muscle. So, Chand could see that the tick's toxin wasn't affecting these random signals, helping the researchers to narrow down the list of suspects. These random signals were there, so therefore, the acetylcholine and the muscle proteins that the acetylcholine attaches to are both working fine. The tick's venom isn't blocking them. If it was, we couldn't see this random signal. 
So going back to what we put aside earlier, the problem has to be the calcium. Either it's not getting let inside the cell in the first place, or once it's in there, it's not releasing the acetylcholine in enough amounts to make the muscle contract. Leaking, yes, but an outpouring that's required for the muscle contraction? It's just not happening. So going back to our analogy, Chom's work showed that the spaceship was getting the call for missing control. The little robots and their docks on the cargo container were working just fine, but the astronauts weren't doing their job. Maybe they weren't able to get inside from the spacewalk because the toxin was locking them out, or maybe they were inside and the tick toxin was keeping them from doing their job putting the little robots in the airlock. Either way, we now know how the Australian paralysis tick is doing it. It's stopping the calcium from releasing acetylcholine in more and more neurons all over the body, stemming the signal between the brain and the muscles, paralyzing the body. So how does all of this help people and animals who are getting bit by these ticks? Well, for now, Knowing this doesn't change what happens when a patient gets seen by a doctor or a vet. But it might someday. Figuring out that the toxin is doing something to the calcium lets medical researchers know where to start looking for a medication. Knowing the MO of the toxin also means that we can study it for its possible medical applications. Say, for example, if there was a disease that causes too much calcium entering the neuron, then a little bit of tick toxin might be just what a person needs to be able to live a normal life. It might sound strange to use a substance that can kill as a medication, but it's happened many times before. Toxins from the Brazilian pit viper were mimicked to create captopril, the best-selling drug of all time. It saves the lives of people with heart failure and high blood pressure. And the yew tree produces its own poison that has been on the market as a cancer medication since the 90s. Work like Chan's which was funded by the Australian Research Council Linker Project, is the type of fundamental work that scientists do to get to know the system, creating knowledge-building blocks that go towards building all sorts of different advances. In February, we're going to be talking about a topic suggested by D. Jacobs, the mosquito fog trucks. I'm going to try to get someone from a vector control district who actually drives one of these trucks to come on and be a guest host, but I don't have anyone lined up just yet, so it might just be me. If you or someone you know drives one of these trucks and you want to come on, please email me at h-f-o-r-r-e-s-1 at gmail.com. I've recently received a lot of great topic suggestions, and they're really interesting, so keep them coming. If you already sent a suggestion, take a look at the coming soon post on our blog to see what month you can expect to hear your name. Raquel and I really love working on this show, and it would be amazing if all you vampire hunters out there would let us know how we're doing by giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you're listening.
Thank you to Title Card Music and Sound for our intro and outro music. Until next time, tell your cousin's wife to be sure to wear some serious insect repellent on her next trip to the east coast of Australia. Since you're a Tiny Vampires fan, here's another Agora podcast that I think you'll really like. In 1994, Yale literary critic Harold Bloom created a massive list of the works he considered the standards of Western literature, beginning with the Bible. In 2016, two overly educated autodidacts, one a professional, the other an interested layman, set out to read every book on the list. Thus was born The Cannonball a podcast attempt to read every book in Bloom's list and along the way explore the whole notion of a canon to begin with. From Dante's Inferno to Ibsen's Dollhouse, from Don Quixote's Extremadura to Elizabeth Bennet's Hertfordshire, join Daniel and Claude as they provide critical commentary, analysis, and from-the-gut personal reactions for all of the books you are too lazy or hungover to read in undergrad. That's the Cannonball. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 